All right, well, welcome to church. I, uh, my name's Robin. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, I don't know if you do this or not, but um, uh, March 2nd was a very special birthday. Anybody want to guess whose birthday it was on March 2nd? Not Jesus, no. Who? Dr. Seuss. That's right. Dr. Seuss. Any Dr. Seuss fans growing up? Wow, that's too bad. Not more of you. That or you're just too cool to raise your hand. So um, Dr. Seuss um, was a, a prolific writer, children's writer. And um, it, throughout, throughout every age, it feels like from the 40s, 50s, he started off as a political cartoonist and um, during World War II and then eventually turned into, matter of fact, he wanted to um, do more kind of adult writing and uh, this woman he fell in love with, Helen, said, you've got to be a cartoonist and you've got to write stories for kids. And so that's what he went into. And he gave up going for a PhD and everything. And, um, and so he's kind, of, he's kind of lasted over space and time. And so uh, Charlotte, my daughter, where she goes to school, they celebrated uh, Dr. Seuss. And throughout the week, matter of fact, if you have kids um, and they're, you know, they're in school, then more than likely... Uh, in your elementary schools, you saw them celebrating that as well. And I'm just going to post a picture of Charlotte here. Uh, this is her on Thursday, and she was really excited. That's right. She decided to call the Lorax uh, grandfather. Uh, that was her name. She just came home. She's like, I want to watch grandfather. I want to talk about grandfather. And so uh, anyway, we got, to, we got to do that. And so we sat around as a family. Uh, we tried to do Thursdays as a family evening. And so we sat around and watched the Lorax. And um, uh, Danny DeVito's the Lorax? That's great. That's fantastic. If you don't, Danny DeVito is awesome. So anyway, Danny DeVito's the Lorax. It just changed the whole game for me. It added another dimension to the Lorax. And um, so we watched that. And uh, how many of you have ever watched the movie or, or read the book Lorax? Okay, the Lorax great. So you know it's about um, the environment. It was written in the early 70s. And there's, um, there's a character in there called the Wunzler, and the, the Wunzler is basically the man who is going through and logging, uh, chopping down trees and using them up and not protecting the environment. And, uh, and so when the Lorax comes down to kind of bring protection and awareness, uh, and he leaves, there's this word he leaves for the Wunzler, and the word is unless. And so the Wunzler spends his life trying to figure out what does this word, what does this word mean? What is it leading towards? And, and it's saying this is actually quite profound. It says that near the end of the story, unless someone like you cares an awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Now, we are in a series right now called The Humanity of Jesus, where we're exploring all the ways that we can relate to the fact that, that God came in the flesh as Jesus in space and time, and that because of that, that means things, and it should actually mean something to us and shape us and, and change us, that he's not some kind of ethereal person who just kind of came and kind of swooped in and brought all this salvation that you could get a hold of if you wanted to, and he just happened to be Jewish, and he just happened to live in northern Palestine, but we don't really focus on those things, and, and, but he brought all this change to the world. And the thing is, is that it was because of where he lived and who he was in space and time 
that allowed him to be able to even embrace the saying that for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that Jesus could show up in space and time and care so much, such an awful lot, that he was able to bring change in space and time. And in turn, what we're trying to do is look at the fact and relate to his humanity and how we can somehow find hope in that, that we're not just trying to come, become some ethereal spiritual beings in the head and somehow get out of this earth. We're actually trying to have like 10 toes down even more so to be super involved, to like not try to get away from what's happening around us. And maybe in our humanity, like Jesus in his humanity, we can say something to the world that we actually do really care a whole awful lot, and we want to help bring change in the midst of all these things. And so we're going to look at something that I believe is going to be uncomfortable. I don't want it to be uncomfortable. I'm telling you all week long, I'm like, why is it I keep preaching on uncomfortable things? I think part of it is, now that I've learned myself an Enneagram, is that I will always uh, just tick people off. I think that's one way to talk about me. Uh, but I don't want to always be that way, but somehow, some way, I just want you to know that, that I love you a lot. Okay, I just want you to know before I give this sermon, I love you a whole lot. And I don't want any of us to walk away condemned. That's not the goal. But I do need to be able to speak truth because this is what I have to live with. And I believe that this is what Jesus is trying to get us to live with. And I turn, I think this is what we kind of have to be willing to walk away with and consider. Because there are different points and times in Jesus' life and his teachings that we don't find ourselves on the same side of. As much as we try to and want to and think we are, as holy as we try to be, as right-minded and studying Scripture as we do, we think we're going to end up on His side. But sometimes you look up from reading the Bible and you realize, I'm not on the same side as Jesus. And it leaves us with something we have to consider and ponder. And it doesn't mean we can't join Him, but it sure means it's going to cost us a whole lot. And I want to talk specifically around this idea that Jesus was a poor man. He was a poor man. Um, and there's some ways I kind of want to, I want to build towards this. I was, I was recently at a meeting in an old church. I don't know if you've ever been to like old churches and in old churches, they usually have these old rooms where they have like classrooms, right? And they'll usually have up art and whatnot from like a long time ago, uh, maybe from the fifties and sixties and whatnot. And I remember I was at a meeting recently in an old church and I looked up and I had a really scary uh, white Jesus staring at me. It was a painting. It wasn't like white Jesus in person. It was like a really, though, a painting. And it was kind of like this right here. I'll, I'll, I'll show it to you. You've probably seen something along these lines before. Like you're looking up and like, man, that's kind of scary. I don't know what to do with that. You know, like he's very much just kind of staring at me. And he's very white. Um, yeah. And I remember looking at that and thinking like, something about that is just all completely incredibly off, all right? Um, and because the reality is, that's not what Jesus looked like. Um, Jesus was not a white man, okay? And he was not a rich man. Uh, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. Uh, Jesus was, uh, was in a time and in a place where um, he had really no credibility, uh, no leverage. Um, he had really no, no platform, he was a Jewish man living in a Roman world. He grew up in northern Palestine, which the best way to talk about that area would be like going down to the Delta in Mississippi. If you've ever been to the Delta before, it's beautiful, and yet it's also like a, a place and a space almost lost in time. 
It feels like 50, 60 years just kind of behind other areas. Um, that was kind of like Galilee. The, the term was nothing good. By the way, I love the Delta. If you're from the Delta, I love it. I, I'm Mississippian, so there you go. We're, we're, we're together in that. But, um, but the, the phrase was, does anything good come out of Galilee? They're kind of uneducated people. They kind of have this kind of backwards way to approach life. They were looked down upon. Even by other Jewish people, Galileans were, were looked down upon. Um, he was born, we know, to a poor family. Matter of fact, we know that because in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, we'll put it on the screen, and when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him, talking about Jesus, to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So this is after Mary has given birth, and there's supposed to be purity, uh, these purity laws where there's a cleansing that happens over a certain time, and you go and offer sacrifices. And we know that because in Leviticus 12, it says, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So we know that Jesus' parents were poor. They couldn't afford the kind of proper middle-of-the-road offering. They had to go with the least amount to offer. They were poor people. He grows up in a poor neighborhood with poor parents. He has a poor education. We know that he also was a carpenter, which that would be like a run-of-the-mill menial job. Anybody could kind of be a carpenter. It's just work you could pick up. It's like the same as kind of working in a factory. You didn't need an education for it. You didn't need a pedigree for it. You just kind of had to show up for the labored task in front of you. And we also know that Jesus couldn't afford his ministry. In Luke 8, this is a fun passage. It's a fun verse to look at. It says, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Shuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them, talking about Jesus and disciples, out of their own means. Thomas Cahill wrote a book, and he was talking about this, and he said, uh, he said, yeah, so uh, Mary and all these women were bankrolling Jesus's ministry. Come on, how about that? Like women bankrolling Jesus. I, I love that line. Like that's how Jesus rolled. He was, he was always having to borrow he had to borrow everything. Matter of fact, think about it. He preached from borrowed boats. He multiplied borrowed food. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed colt, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Come on. Like this, this man was poor. He had nothing, nothing of his own means, nothing to kind of offer the rest of the world in a sense of platform and prestige. Howard Thurman was a um, mid to early 20th century uh, civil rights leader and writer and pastor and theologian, um, an African-American who profoundly shaped culture and understanding of even liberation theology for others. Martin Luther King, it was said, who studied underneath him, would carry his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. He would carry um, 
he would carry Howard Thurman's book in his pocket wherever he went. He was such an influential person about the idea of nonviolent resistance. And he said, the economic predicament in which Jesus was identified in birth placed him initially with the great mass of men on the earth. The masses of the people are poor. If we dare take the position that in Jesus there was at work some radical destiny, it would be safe to say that in his poverty he was more truly son of man than he would have been if the incident of family or birth had made him a rich son of Israel. Thurman recognizes that in Jesus being called the son of man, he identifies with every man, woman, and child who makes up the majority of the world. The majority of the world are those who grew up in poverty. Those who do not have any kind of platform, prestige, or privilege. And this is how Jesus shows up in space and time. But he wasn't just a poor person. He was also someone who lived in the wrong place at the wrong time, under the wrong rule. It's one thing to be poor. It's another thing that when you are raised in a system that is completely unfair and unjust, and it somehow is going to constantly keep you down. Rome controlled the world. And the way that Rome would kind of roll into a country is to say, here's how this is going to work. You could revolt and we can kill you, or you can kind of buy into this peace that we're trying to give, and you'll be basically like indentured servants. Like, you're going to have to roll with us or you're going to have to die because of us. Those are your choices. And if those are your choices to live within that system, that means you really have no choice to be able to make life better for yourself. You only can go off of what the system gives you. People were controlled and their rights were limited under Rome's rule. Make no mistake about it. And if you weren't a Roman citizen and you were poor, you were at the bottom of the barrel. You were the ones who had the least amount of voice and the least amount of say-so over your life. Jesus lived in an exposed world without rights, without safety. No choices to how he'd want to live his life except with what Rome would give them. It was a system created to subjugate and oppress people. For those certain people to have power and others to not. Again, Thurman helps us. He says, if a Roman soldier pushed Jesus into a ditch, he could not appeal to Caesar. He would be just another Jew in a ditch. Just another Jew in a ditch. Standing always beyond the reach of citizen security, he was perpetually exposed to all the arrows of outrageous fortune. And there was only a gratuitous refuge, if any, within the state. He was a poor person. He was a minority. He was one who did not have a say-so over his own life. And this is our Lord. This is our Savior. Now, there were some ways around this, of course, you could get around the system if you needed to. There was King Herod, not Herod the Great, it was his son, Antipas, who 
took over kind of the northern region of, of Palestine. And he was basically like a puppet. Rome's hand was up him, and he would only mimic back what would be best for him. He lived in a system that he was an indentured servant. He realized it, but he worked the system for his own means. And he wasn't alone. There were Sadducees, the religious elite within Jerusalem who oversaw the sacrificial system. There were tax collectors who learned how to skim off the poor so they could somehow get some money on the side. There were even the scribes. The scribes were those who got to kind of write the laws and argue the laws within a judicial system. Almost like lawyers, but it was a little bit more nuanced than that than how we talk about it today. And these people made up the 1%, the most privileged within a subjugated system. They were the ones who kind of found their way out. They could kind of have the right meals with the right people at the right times and keep kind of fooling themselves into thinking that life was going to work out for them. And that's what brings us to our passage. Jesus is traveling throughout northern Palestine. He's making headlines. He's picking up some press. As Drew talked about last week, that when he would kind of come into a town, there would be a crowd with him, somewhere between, like theologians, scholars believe, somewhere between maybe 500 to 1,000 people at any given time who would just kind of follow Jesus. Think about those kind of crowds following Jesus into areas. They were so, like, taken with his ministry. They, people were coming up to him left and right saying, I want to follow you. What's it going to take for me to be with you? And from time to time, though, there would be people, because Jesus was a man of the people. He was part of the 99%. But every once in a while, there'd be a one percenter who'd come up and say, I want to follow you. I want to go where you're going. What's it going to take? You remember the rich young ruler? That was, a, that was an instance in Scripture. Jesus asked something really hard out of the rich young ruler, like, go give away everything you have and then come and follow me. And you're like, man, that's difficult. The rich young ruler realizes it's difficult, and he walks away. So we have a scribe here. We have somebody of the 1%. It says a scribe. Let's look at verse 19. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him something really, really strange. Pause for a second. Why can't Jesus just be normal sometimes? Like, if he's a man of the people, like, why has he got to talk in code? Now, here's the deal. You read this at first, and you're, and you're going, okay, so here's what he says. Foxes have holes, birds of, the nests, birds of the air have nests. And you look at that, and you're like, why do we have to talk about foxes and birds? Like, for me growing up, I didn't know what to do with that. I just thought, well, he just liked animals. Like, he just, he just he thought about these things. He would see an animal, he's like, I'm going to use that in a sermon one day. Like, for no particular reason, right, no segue except just to talk about animals. And I'm thinking, I, like, why didn't he choose, like, you know, bears have caves? Or, like, lions have dens? Like, why does he have to choose, like, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests? But if you kind of consider what he's, see, here's the thing. When you're a person who lives in a, in a um, subjugated system where you are an indentured slave, you got to be careful what you say out loud because word gets around. If you say the wrong thing, you could get in trouble with the wrong people. And Jesus was very uh, crafty, not in a, in a um, not like in trickery, okay? He wasn't dishonest, but he was just very um, much present with the world around him and what he could and could not talk about out loud. 
So he would talk in metaphors and images to bring about and conjure up different things. The kind of things that people would go, we know what he's talking about. But if word got back around to Rome and they came and confronted him, people would be like, he's just talking about animals. So here's the thing. Foxes have holes. Well, we know in Luke chapter 13, Jesus gets all worked up when somebody comes and talks to him about Herod Antipas, all right, King Herod. And first off, he wasn't a real king. Like there were no real kings within, um, within Palestine at this time. There was only an emperor. There might be a king that they give him kind of that title, but it doesn't like a real king. And Herod Antipas was really into the fact that he thought he was a real king. And so Jesus, he actually calls him. He goes, you go tell that fox, Herod. That's what it says in Luke 14. Like he calls Herod a fox. Now, you could at first think that what he means when he calls Herod a fox is that Herod's crafty. But within an ancient Judaic tradition, it wasn't that foxes were crafty. It's that they were mean and malicious. It's that they would sneak and go get their food and bring it back into holes. He also was trying to bring a contrast and an insult to Herod because any king would want to recognize themselves as a lion. And Jesus is like, no, you have a, you're a fox and all that you have are holes to run into. So he says that foxes have holes. He's addressing Herod. And then he says, and birds of the air have nests. And if you were to do any kind of quick search and research around Rome, their symbol was Aquila or this eagle. And this eagle was strong and mounted, and they would charge into different countries and take over, and there would be the symbol of an eagle, this bird. And Jesus is saying, foxes have holes, birds like Rome, they have nests. There's all this privilege out there. But the Son of Man, a man of the people, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, in a very creative way, is addressing a very unjust system. And he's speaking to a person, a scribe, who can go one of two ways. He's in the middle. This scribe who can kind of lean into this other side with the foxes and the birds. Or this scribe who actually can lean into following the Son of Man. For the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And as I was studying this passage this week, I wanted so badly to be able to say that I can relate to Jesus. Like, don't you know, like you read a passage, you're like, okay, humanity, Jesus is relating to my humanity here. But the shame for me is that I couldn't relate to Jesus in this passage because I'm the scribe. I'm the 1%. I'm not a man of the people in space and time. I'm not a son of man who can relate to the tragedies of what people have gone through for thousands of years. I just can't. And the fear, once I saw that this week, I was like, oh. Drew or Jamie, can you please preach this week? I mean, it's just like, goodness gracious. And then I started thinking about our church. And I'm like, yeah, we can't relate to Jesus in this. Even our church is like the scribe. And it can be a really uh, lonely, fearful, confusing thing. And here's what's interesting, though. Jesus doesn't leave the scribe at that place where, 
hey, just you just go be lonely and you just go to that path of being a one percenter. Jesus says to him, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Come, come and take up this fight against the systems that are unjust. Come and follow me in standing for the rights of the oppressed. Come and follow me into the thing you don't want to do. Jesus gives the call. Come and follow me. He doesn't leave the scribe there. Now, we don't know what the scribe decides to do. We just know that the scribe was not a man of the people, but Jesus was. And we just know that the scribe was left with the decision that he was going to have to make. Can I actually follow a poor Jesus? Which I think is our question. You can follow a powerful Jesus who saves your soul. You can follow a kind and benevolent Jesus who forgives you of sins. You can follow a a merciful Jesus who meets you in the midst of your own personal despair and needs in life. But here's the question for us. Can we follow a poor Jesus? A Jesus who was born into a place, a space, and wanting to bring change to it. To be part of the system in the sense where he's subjugated to it and want to change it from the inside out. Can we follow that kind of Jesus? Now listen, I know just how uncomfortable many of us get when we start talking about things like this. Because now, okay, so now we're talking about social justice on a Sunday morning. Okay, that's what we're doing now. We're going we're gonna to talk, because I'm, listen, man, I don't know if that's really the gospel or not. I don't know if I'm really down with that. That feels kind of uncomfortable. Okay, so, because, and, and there's a really good heart behind that. The heart is, we don't want to talk about the things that divide us, because we may have different views on social justice. And I, I really respect that. But a couple, there's a few things I want to respond to for this next half. One is this, by not talking about the thing, you're bringing more division in the thing. Like by not addressing the fear that you have with something, you're actually bringing more divide. I'm not telling you that when I'm done with this sermon, you better land where I'm landing. Not saying that at all. You can keep whatever you need to keep wherever you are. But I am saying this, that there's actually a harm that comes by not willing to talk about it. Two, when you can choose what you want to talk about, when you want to talk about it, and where you want to talk about it, that's the definition of privilege. Snaps are good, I think. Okay, so when you talk about, when you want to talk about what you want to talk about, how you want to talk about, where you want to talk about, that is the definition of privilege. And that's going to cost you a lot to give up on your terms. But here's the most important thing to me, I would say. We can't talk about the gospel without including how the gospel changed cultures and how it upends the systemic rules of Rome and how there's always was a Rome or an Egypt and there always will be a Rome and an Egypt. That's the story of the Bible. So we can't actually talk about the gospel without talking about the change the gospel brings. And I know that's difficult for us, but I just want you to think about this for a second. Think about this. The two most important moments in Scripture, 
okay? And I'm not like cherry picking on this. I'm just like, this is kind of like just the Bible, all right? The two most important, this is the thing that starts the Old Testament and the thing that starts the New Testament. You ready? The Exodus and the Incarnation. I don't think, I don't think we can argue that, okay? The Exodus starts the Old Testament. So you know this, right? Like Genesis was written by Moses to people coming out of 400 years of slavery, and he's writing to them a new narrative, pulling from all the stories of the world at that time and saying, here's how the world you thought worked, but here's how the world actually is meant to work under the rule of God, Yahweh. So it's people walking out of their slavery into a new reality of how life can be different. Salvation for a Jewish person wasn't something spiritual, guys. Salvation for an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person was something very, very physical. It was literally change. Hey, it's not like, think about it. If Moses would have showed up and said, okay, all y'all in slavery, I have good news. Like, one of these days, you're going to die, and it's all going to be okay. And so just hold out for the next, like, 30 years and just suffer, but it's going to be okay. And you get, like, crowns in heaven. Nobody's going like, let's high-five that message. That's what I want to do. They would have been like, get out of here, man. Think about it. Jesus shows up in space and time under the most harsh rule in the world known to man. As a poor man, and the first message he brings in Matthew 4 is, I've come to preach good news for the oppressed for those who are marginalized, and for the poor. That's the first thing he says. So the point is this. If those are the two most important events that have kind of sparked the flow of Yahweh in space and time, it seems to me that that would be important for us to consider as well. And I understand, I know there's lots of stuff in the New Testament, even some parts from Jesus that we could pick out about salvation, spiritually, that we are unclean on the inside and we need to be cleansed and we need to have a really pure walk with our creator. I understand that, but friends, that's like 10% of the Bible. The other 90 is about how like all this stuff changes the world around us. So are we gonna focus on 10% and ignore the other 90? Or are we gonna be able to say like, no, let's just look at it all together. And let it be like pieces of a pie. Yes, your salvation matters. You being with God forever matters. Don't, I'm not, I'm a preacher, all right? Like, of course that matters. But gosh, what does it then mean? How does it change things? I'll go back to Howard Thurman again on this. It's in your bulletins. He says, I do not ignore the theological and metaphysical interpretation of the Christian doctrine of salvation. But the underprivileged everywhere have long since abandoned any hope that this type of salvation deals with the crucial issues by which their days are turned into despair without consolation. The basic fact is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish teacher and thinker, appears as a technique of survival for the oppressed. That it became, through the intervening years, a religion of the powerful and the dominant, used sometimes as an instrument of oppression 
must not tempt us into believing that it was thus in the mind and life of Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Whenever his spirit appears, the oppressed gather fresh courage, for he announced the good news that fear, hypocrisy, and hatred, the three hounds of hell that track the trail of the disinherited, need have no dominion over them. Now, let me be clear about a couple of things, what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Here's what I am saying. If you are a person of color or a person who grew up in poverty here in America, if you are that person, you've grown up in a world that doesn't work for you. You've grown up in a world that doesn't work for you. You've grown up in a system that doesn't lend itself favor to you. And in many ways, in many ways, America has been Rome. Okay? And it's just a fact. Because when our history is built upon coming and conquering Native Americans through cruelty and torture, and then it's repeated again by bringing Africans over and putting them into a system where there's more killing and torture and fear for them to then be a part of the system. When that's the foundations, that's a systemic and just way of doing life. And if that's you and that's your heritage, what I am saying is this. Jesus, Yahweh, came for you first in space and time. He came for you first. He came for anyone who was oppressed and marginalized and disinherited and behind the eight ball because of the color of their skin or where they grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. He came for you first. Now, the sad part and the shame part of that is that's not many, most of us in this room. Is what it is. So what I'm not saying on the other side is this, that if you are a person who's benefited from the system, yes, I understand that Jim Crow laws ended, but we're only two generations removed, and even the Bible understands that it takes up to seven generations for things to actually change. Okay? I get that slavery ended a while back, but when there's still like an indentured way of living, it kind of continues. So what I'm saying to you is, if you are a person who's actually benefited from that system, you don't have to have white guilt. So many times we have this conversation, we're like, great, here comes the part where I need to be guilty for the color of my skin. Nope. Just like the person who doesn't need to be subjugated because of the color of their skin, you don't have to be guilty because of the color of your skin. But here's what I will say. If we don't start waking up to some degree and recognizing what's been afforded to us because of where we grew up and the systems we had 
and the advantage in, if we don't start waking up and seeing that, critiquing it honestly, then we will, like the scribe or like the rich young ruler, make a decision perhaps not to follow Jesus on Jesus' terms. There comes a crossroad in all of our lives when you are a person who comes from a system that works for you where you have to ask the question, like, how much longer am I going to keep doing it this way? What's it going to take for things to change for me? It doesn't mean you need to start throwing all your money away, burning it in a bonfire in the backyard, throwing away your degrees, shaming your parents for who they are. Goodness gracious, no. That's just swinging a pendulum. But it is recognizing that there are some things about our lives that just need to change. And that if we turn a blind eye to that, listen to this, we just might find ourselves on the wrong side of history with God. Because God's on the right side of history. And his side of history is always the marginalized and the oppressed and those who are um, not benefiting from the system at hand. And so when I thought about this part, shame, I am, and I, okay, so I know that I'm biracial. Uh, I identify more Caucasian uh, just growing up in Mississippi with my white side of the family. I also get that I'm Iranian, okay, and I did experience racism. So in some, there are some ways I can relate. At the same time, the systems I came from, just pick a side, whether white, American, or Iranian, like we, we kind of like we're a part of the thing in the first place, right? So there's some shame I have there with that to a degree. I also get the holes within it being someone like me standing up here and talking about this. And the last thing I want any of you to do is walk away is going, man, that guy, he's such a hypocrite. So here's what I need to say to you. I'm in process right now with this. And I have been for several years. As I was talking to, to, to Jamin, one of our teaching pastors and elders, like, man, what do I do with this? Just give your process. So here's my process. You know, the, the term has been used to like woke, <laughs> get woke. I was like, what is that? I heard that. If you're like, oh, what, is, what are we talking about? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's such a no offense, but it, it sounds weird when white people use that a lot. You know what I mean? Like, just, okay. Um, so, okay, so whatever. So here's, here's kind of my process of me coming to a place of seeing these things. One has been this. We'll put it on the screen. Getting in touch with my insights. Again, if you haven't been at Christ City longer than a minute, that sounds really weird to you. For those who've been here longer than like six months, you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> we're, we're a feelings church. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, we believe in Jesus and feelings. Um, I've found that me getting in touch with my own heart has actually led me to wanting to care and love myself in ways that I never could consider. I looked at myself in the mirror for 30 plus years and hated what I saw. I hated the receding hairline or the waistline that wasn't the same as my early 20s. I hated uh, my voice. I hated how I came across. I learned from a young age to really shame and hate myself. Um, and then I'd read these passages from Jesus where he'd be like, okay, love God 
love others and love others as you love yourself. So love God, love you, love others. And I'd be like, okay, great. I'll love you, God, and I'll love others. But that part about loving me, just I don't have time for that. And it's like Jesus is going, well, then you don't have time for me. Because I'm here to love you, and then you're not going to be able to really love others fully until you really care for yourself. Because until you have something to give, you have nothing to give. So if you hate yourself and love others, that means you're really loving others in a half-hearted way. So the more I got in touch with my own story and empathy for my own life, the more I found like I was a more caring and compassionate person. I started looking at my story. Two, though, I found um, that I could hear the hurts of another's insides. I remember going to a Black Lives Matter rally, and this has actually ticked some people off when I've said this up front. I'm not, I'm not saying Black Lives Matter is the way, the truth, and the life. I'm just telling you, like if you're listening to this, just what I went to, okay? So I went to a Black Lives Matter rally, and I'm a person who grew up in a world that said people are all the same and they're equal in America, they all have the same footing, and that there are people who are just acting in ways that are whether uneducated or they could just do better, they choose not to. All those kind of things. You know what I'm talking about. And I remember going to this rally and sitting in there, about a thousand people, and just looking around going, oh my God, the hurt, the hurt in this room stretches back for generations. I didn't see... um, I didn't see people making really dumb decisions for tens upon hundreds of years. I saw people just like really hurting and asking, can somebody see me? And here's what I realized. It's taken me this long to see someone else because I couldn't see myself. But when I finally was willing to see myself and the hurt in my own life, it led me to finally seeing people, not as objects, but as human beings who have pain and they're just hurting. And if I'm a human and you're a human and I care for my life, what would it mean for me to actually care for your life? If I've been looking for someone to hear me on my terms about where I've come from and what I grew up in, maybe you want the same? I found myself just seeing other people. I found that my Imago Day was worth listening to and so was another person's. I think the third thing I found for me is I decided to start letting the Bible say what it's saying instead of what I want it to say. I just wanted the Bible to say something very specific for me. I wanted the Bible to kind of speak to my circumstance and who I was at a, as a 21st century, you know, uh, American and that Jesus was like really, when he wrote these words, when he was saying these words, he was speaking to me. Um, and that's just not how the Bible works. The Bible doesn't fit the way that I want it to. Uh, If I were to ask you a question, this is the question, and that is between these three, if these are the three elements that make up the tricycle that we ride on in life, okay, these three elements, scripture, tradition, and experience, which one would be your lead wheel between scripture, tradition, and experience? And if you had a minute to think about it, probably you're going to say the lead will in my life is Scripture. But then you would be wrong because it's impossible for Scripture to be the lead will in your life 
when all you can base life off of is your own experiences. You can't help but see life through your own lens. And that doesn't make things wrong, but you kind of have to decide, look at it for what it is. No one gets the perfect interpretation of how Scripture works because everyone's coming from perspectives at different spaces and time. And just so you know, God's cool with that, right? Like, he's not trying to show up and be like, all y'all are idiots, and you should have got this right like 500 years ago. It is what it is. We have our own experiences, but do we have enough humility to admit that and then look at Scripture through that and ask other people their own experiences through Scripture and how they look at that and then consider the traditions we've been a part of and then, then actually go, are those traditions okay? Or do some of them need to end? Do we poke holes or do we grab a hold of? What makes the Bible so believable, friends, is that the Bible critiques itself. No other holy book in the world does that. It's called the prophets. Go read the prophets. All they do is poke holes within a Judaic understanding of the world. We got this wrong, and 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 we got this wrong. That's what makes the Bible so believable. If you can actually bring critique to your own life and receive critique of where maybe you're not getting it right, you have a chance at a much more robust life. Number four, I started asking questions and then listened and learned. Or as the great prophet Kendrick Lamar says, sit down and be humble. Like, I just found myself like going, okay, I'll ask questions and I'll listen and learn. That's what I'll do. Number five, ask more questions and listen and learn. Like, just keep asking questions. Keep going like, man, how's this going? What is this like? How do I learn from you? What does this mean? Like, just start looking around the world. Get outside of building up the life and the world in your own ways for your own image that benefits you and go, how's it really working for others that didn't grow up with my privilege and my background and my platform? And just sit down and learn and let it affect you. Start thinking like, what's it going to take for you to actually get near anyone else who has a different perspective and a different understanding and go, how do I learn from you? Listen, when Jesus shows up, we said it at the beginning of this whole thing of Jesus back in July. The first thing he steps up and says is, blessed are those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we said this then, that what he's saying is that the first place you need to start to learn from is a poor person. Basically, you need to be discipled by poor people. You need to be discipled by people who actually get the kingdom of heaven more intuitively than you do. You're not the saviors coming in and changing the world. That's called Jesus. He doesn't need any more help. What he needs are people humble enough to recognize how that there are things that get in the way from them seeing and expressing him clearly and being a part of the refreshment, rejuvenation, restoring of this world. And then lastly, I'm sorry, not lastly, I have two more. No, I have lastly, that's right. <laughs> Six, ask yourself the gospel question. What must I give up so that others can rise up?
Jesus shows up. Paul actually tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus was wealthy and he gave up his wealth, his privilege, his platform. It says in verse 7 and 8 and 9 that he emptied himself and became like the everyday man so that you now can have the riches in him. The gospel narrative is always this. God gives up so you can rise up, so that you can actually, like, resurrect. And that means that the gospel question that we're always asking in life is, what could I give up so that others could rise up? Is it platform? Like, one of the things I realized is that, like, I just need to preach less. Someone like a Jamin needs to preach more. That I need to be making less decisions about how I think discipleship and whatever else needs to work around here. And then ask other people who are not like me to go, what do you think about that? How would you do it? And I know it's, un- I, I know it's not, like, not always the most comfortable thing. I get it. I get we don't have the best church growth strategy around here. Totally see that. And yet, I'm much more interested, instead of growing people, I'm much more interested in growing in the gospel. And like, how do we actually become the change that can like do something in the city? And it gives people a shot to find more hope. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to communion. By the way, I forgot, I did say one thing up here. There's a, a book that I've been referencing, Jesus and the Disinherited, by Howard Thurman. Yeah. We have copies of that out at the book table. That if you don't own this book, you've ever read this book, go grab a copy. Um, and maybe even consider, like, going up to, like, a, a Jamin, saying, hey, what would it mean for us to talk about this at some point in time? But not just Jamin, because he's a, an elder here, a pastor. There are others in this room that are a minority and that come from a background different from yours. And just being humble enough to go, could I ask you questions? I don't, I don't mean to make this weird. And if it's weird, just tell me, you know. But like, can we talk about things? Because I don't always get things. And being humble enough in those ways I think that's like the kind of place and the kind of stuff that change can happen. So as we go to communion, just consider this. This table, this table is begging you to ask the question, what can you give up so that others can rise up? Because this table says that he gave of himself so that you now can have the things that you never could have gotten on your own. Let's pray. So, Father, now as we go before you in the table, I pray simply that you would speak to us, show us the beauty of Christ in such a way that we are very um, moved, deeply moved, and could even find hope wherever we may be. Amen.